Hello, everyone. This is Jonathan Mustafa Jack Matthews, and Garrett Ledford. And this is episode five of A Pushing History. All right, let's get straight into the topic of today's podcast, sectional crisis. Before we get too deep into it, can you explain what the sectional crisis was, Jack? Sure. The sectional crisis didn't really have an official start date, but some historians say it started as early as the 1820s, and some say it started all the way in the 1850s. The two main sides of this crisis were the pro-slavery advocates in the South and the anti-slavery advocates from the North. And these two sides often tried to compromise with each other and make deals, but oftentimes these compromises didn't work, such as the Compromise of 1850. Garrett, could you give us some insight into the Compromise of 1850? What were the provisions? What prompted it? Well, prior to the compromise, the United States and Mexico got involved in a conflict between April 1846 to February 1848. After the Mexican-American War, the United States gained a large piece of land known as the Mexican Secession. Before this, the Missouri Compromise dealt with the sectional problems well, but the acquiring of this land sparked more trouble. What does that have to do with the compromise? Well, the North and the South both had three provisions. The North got California added as a free state into the Union and received a smaller part of Texas and ended slave trade in the capital, D.C. The South enacted a way stricter and more aggressive fugitive slave law, had their Texas debt paid, and created popular sovereignty in the territory of Mexico, bearing California. Around this time, Texas' borders were being established and the United States took on the weight of their debt. I assume the war produced some land disputes between Mexico and the United States, more specifically Texas. Well, you would be right with that assumption, Jonathan. The Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848 solved the border disputes. Elaborate more on that. So the treaty set the southern border of Texas at the Rio Grande River and the U.S. also received California and New Mexico for $15 million. Okay, Jack, since Garrett set the stage for the Compromise of 1850, I would like you to focus more on it. Let's start with the creator of it. Who was Henry Clay? Well, Henry Clay was alive from 1777 and died shortly after his compromise in 1852. And he was a U.S. politician who was active during the 19th century and he was Secretary of State under President John Quincy Adams. He was known as the Great Compromiser due to his legendary knack of formulating compromises. Can you explain to us the main parts of the Compromise of 1850? Gladly. It split the newly acquired lands from the Mexican War into two main pieces, Utah and New Mexico. Both pieces had territorial governments established, and they got to decide for themselves whether they would be free or slave states. This is called popular sovereignty. It was hugely unpopular in the North because it had territories that should have been free states, and it gave them the opportunity to become slave states. It helped expand the fugitive slave laws and slave power, leading many Northerners to believe in the slave power conspiracy. What was a slave power conspiracy? Well, it was a belief that pro-slavery Southerners had gained control of the federal government 
and that they were going to destroy all of the Republican ideals in the country. They also believed that the Southerners were going to make slavery a national institution and have large plantation owners taking government jobs. Okay, thank you for that quick explanation. How did the president and American people feel about the compromise? Well, it was taken differently by both sets. President Zachary Taylor opposed it. However, the American people were not happy when he vetoed it. What was the Wilmot Proviso? The Wilmot Proviso was a proposal issued on August 8th in 1846 by David Wilmot from Pennsylvania, and it prohibited the expansion of slavery into any territory that the United States acquired from the Mexican-American War. And this bill was passed by the House of Representatives, but ultimately got blocked in the Senate. Okay, thank you. Continue, please. The Wilmot Proviso would let Utah and New Mexico decide on whether they would be free or slaves. And this is important because it allowed Northern Republican representation to overtake the South in sectional votes. And because of this, the South was hoping for equal representation in the Senate. However, Taylor wanted to make them free states immediately. But before he can stop it, Taylor dies and Millard Fillmore takes over the presidency and helps Congress to finally pass these bills. Okay, Jack, thank you for that brilliant explanation. Let's move on to the, some of the effects, such as the slave trade in Washington, D.C. Well, the slave trade was abolished in Washington. Buying and selling slaves was illegal, but owning slaves was not. Abolishing slave trade was highly symbolic because D.C. is the capital of the United States, and slavery was banned there. Also, abolitionists used anti-slavery politics called Freedom National to end slavery in the capital. The main point of Freedom National was the states allowed slavery, but the Constitution did not originally allow slavery, thus meaning the federal government shouldn't either. What about the provision called the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850? This new Fugitive Slave Act was a revised version of 1793. The 1793 Slave Act declared that slave owners and their workers such agents were able to recapture slaves even if they weren't in, were in free states. They would have to provide evidence in court, usually assigned affidavit, before they could legally take their slaves back. It also included a $500 fine for anybody who assisted runaway slave by harboring or concealing them. What was the difference between the 1850s? Uh, Freedom Slave Act and the old one. Citizens were forced to assist in capturing and returning runaway slaves. Concealing and or harboring slaves was now had a penalty of a thousand dollar fine plus six months in jail. Individual cases went to federal commissioners, but the commissioners were paid more to return runaway slaves than they were when they freed them. Northerners were absolutely enraged by this law. Vermont and Wisconsin tried to nullify New Fugitive Slave Act by passing the Personal Liberty Laws. These laws were a way to protect escaped black slaves and free blacks living in the North by allowing fugitives the right to jury and access to attorneys. The North also authorized severe punishment for kidnapping and prohibited state officials from listening to claims about fugitives. The Underground Railroad reached its height and violence sometimes broke out. For example, people freed Chirac Minkins from federal custody 
in a Boston courthouse in 1851. Other violence later occurred in New York, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin in smaller situations. Only 330 slaves have been successfully returned to their owners in the South between 1850 and 1860. This new Fugitive Slave Act really did not have a backbone. The federal government really did not have the resources or ability to enforce the Fugitive Slave Acts. In theory, they were very powerful, but they did not work in practice. Most Northerners hated the law and became active in fighting against it. How exactly did the North fight against these laws? Well, California was admitted in the U.S. as a free state, and then the California gold rush caused more people to go into California, and it gave a high enough population to be, be a state. The Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo gave the United States a land for California in exchange for $15 million. California requested statehood in 1849. There were currently 30 states, 15 were free, and 15 were slaves, 30 senators for each side. The South wasn't happy about California joining the Union as a free state. California would upset the balance in the Senate, which caused Southerners to worry about slavery being ended in California and intensified the sectional rivalry between the North and South. After the Compromise of 1850, there were 16 free states and 15 slave states, meaning that the Senate was tipped in favor of the abolitionists. Keeping the balance of the Senate was considered crucial at the time, and the balance had just been broken. Free states had more representatives in the House, as well as, well as 108 Whigs, 9 Free Soilers, 1 American Party, and 1 Independent versus 113 Democrats. So overall, the North saw the addition of California as a free state. The South didn't really get much uh, part of the Compromise of 1850, as the fugitive slave laws were extremely ineffective and hard to enforce, although the South did benefit from popular sovereignty. Yeah, I agree. Me too. As we can see, the conflict coming from slavery was bound to happen. The sectional crisis added to the boiling pot the United States was becoming, which would eventually lead to the American Civil War because sectionalism caused both sides to only be concerned with their own interests, essentially making two different countries. This is Jonathan Wusubwahina, Garrett Ledford, and Jack Matthews with episode five of A Pushing History. Thank you for listening.